So I just want to look at one short phrase in the first reading from the Book of Wisdom and in the Gospel today. In the Book of Wisdom, we're told in that opening phrase, God did not make death. And in the Gospel, when the synagogue official, which we call a chazen, a chazen, and our Lord arrived at the house, someone came out and said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the master? Death is troubling whenever it comes. Death is never, ever a convenience and on an emotional and relational level, never welcome. So it's always troubling, and we're troubled by death. But perhaps we're not ever more troubled than when death is drawing near and we, if we are facing death ourselves, or we are representing someone we know and love, we have to make a series of decisions. And this usually is referred to as end-of-life decisions, but I'm going to challenge that uh, nomenclature in a moment. But it's probably never more troubling than when we face a sequence of decisions for ourselves or for another as death draws near. So, how can we make decisions at the end of the course of life in this dimension, this earthly life of ours, and be certain that those decisions will be moral and ethical? How can we have this assurance? because death is so troubling. Well, we begin with a fundamental principle of the church. The church begins with a fundamental principle that life, human life, is always a good. What do we mean by this? There is no life not worth living. I know that's a double negative. I know that's grammatical homicide or gramicide. Uh, so we put it in the positive. Every life is always worth living. That's a fundamental principle. 
I know what you're thinking. What about the quality of life? Well, we don't make a judgment of the quality of any person's life. Every person's life is always a good. But, Pope St. John Paul said, not an absolute good. So let me make a funny, if I may. You know, Jews can't resist stand-up. So, the doctors come out and they say, we can give Grandpa three more days, maybe three more weeks, maybe three months. Everybody says, that's good. But we have to tie him up by his ankles, hang him from the roof of the hospital, and shoot fire hoses at him. Not going to do that. That's ridiculous. Life is always a good, but not an absolute good. We don't preserve life in this dimension, physical life, at any cost and in any way. We have to measure how we approach the preservation of our own lives or anyone else's. So we have to begin with a series of questions. I call them the three questions. In the course of 36 years of pastoral ministry now and my work in bioethics, healthcare ethics, I was able to narrow this down to three questions as death draws near. The first question, well, let me back up a little bit and, leave, and lay a little more foundation for the three questions. First, we never judge the value of another person. A person is always good. That is, their life is always of infinite and eternal value. So we never judge the value of a person. Rather, we judge the value of treatments being proposed. So the first question that we ask is the treatment being proposed futile and will not change the outcome? Is the treatment being proposed futile and will not change the outcome? What do we mean by this? Futility means that the treatment will not do what the treatment was made to do. That's what futility means. The treatment will not do what the treatment was made to do. So the first question we ask, is the treatment being proposed futile and will not change the outcome? Second question that we ask, will the treatment being proposed only extend or increase the suffering of the patient? And the operative term there is only. Will it only extend or increase the suffering of the person. The third question we ask, 
Is the treatment being proposed disproportionate and overly burdensome to the patient, to the family, or to both? So let me use an example. We have someone in Mozambique, in uh, Africa, lives a simple life in a village with his extended family, and he develops a chronic disease, which is going to eventuate in his death. But the doctors say, we can treat you, and perhaps we can cure you, but we have to fly you to Saskatchewan, Canada, and you'll be isolated for a year, and at the end of that year, we'll make an assessment, and you have a greater than 50% chance that you will be cured. But you'll live isolated from your family, away from your culture, the things that bring you comfort and assurance. Well, that may be disproportionate and overly burdensome. The disproportionate part is uh, losing those essential connections with family and culture and overly burdensome the travel, the cost, they may lose the family farm, and the uh, isolation, overly burdensome. Let me use a real example a true story that I was a part of. So, Grandpa develops a terrible aggressive cancer in his head. And the docs say, we, we're sure we can tackle this, we're almost certain we can cure it, but we have to take half your face away. And Grandpa reflects on that and thinks of his lovely grandchildren who he uh, is... A, fearful that they will be so afraid and so repulsed by his appearance that they won't want to see him in his final chapter of life. And he doesn't want his grandchildren horrified and running from him. He wants his grandchildren in his lap, kissing his face, not running from it. And so he declines the treatment. He would rather die from the cancer in the bosom of his family and grandchildren rather than live and be a horrible spectacle. Now, he may be right or wrong, and those kids may have not even noticed or they may have liked it. Who knows? We don't know. But for him, it is disproportionate and overly burdensome. Do you see the distinction? He has the moral right to decline the treatment. Now, in order to be moral, we must never introduce the agent of death. So this shuts out any form of euthanasia. We must never introduce the agent of death. If the agent of death is present, like an aggressive terminal cancer, and making its way to its natural end, and the answer to one or more of our three questions is yes, then the moral decision may and often is to decline the treatment 
and to allow the agent of death, whatever that might be, to come to its natural end and allow that person to die in comfort as much as possible, in reconciliation with God and in the church and with the family, and surrounded by loved ones and those who care for that person and to die in peace. Now, I didn't say that we must choose that path. I didn't say that at all. I said we may choose that path. This is not about outcome. We don't know what the outcome will be. Oh, but do you know that there is an absolutely certain way to know how old you will be when you die? What age you will be when you die? You know that there's an absolute certain way of determining that? Take the date of your birth and subtract it from the date of your death and you'll know how old you are. Now, your birthday you get from your birth certificate. The other one, I can't tell you where you can find that. Only, only one knows. But if you can find it, you'll get the, de- the, the age of your, your death. So we don't know what the outcome will be. This is not about outcome. It's about process. And if we undertake the process in conformity with the teachings of the church, with the gospel, then we can have peace that our decision-making was moral and ethical. Our seminarian, Greg, took his degree in philosophy, so he knows much more about this than I do. But the church does not require us to have absolute certainty, only moral certainty. See, we can't have absolute certainty in this life that every turn we take, every decision we make is the absolutely right decision. But if we, if we undertake the process of decision-making in the context of the principles of the church, then we can rest in assurance that our decision-making will be moral and will be ethical as life draws to its earthly conclusion. But let's be careful. I told you I don't like end of life. I don't like that term at all. Why? The preface of the Mass for the Dead, the first preface of the Mass for the Funeral, has this beautiful phrase in it. For your faithful Lord, life is changed, not ended. And when this earthly dwelling turns to dust, an eternal dwelling is made ready for them in heaven. Pope Pius XII, who was the first pope to address this issue in modern times, said that we must be cautious about so valuing physical life, that we obviate eternal life. We don't want to inhibit someone from being able to be released comfortably to their eternal reward by so suffocating them with the preservation of physical life. So we want to take this very carefully in the context of the teaching of the church so that our decision-making as death draws near 
is both moral and ethical.